Welcome to iWoofs with your hosts, Dr. Ian and Kelly Dunbar, and me, Jamie Dunbar. Uh, we're running, Kelly. I think we've started. Well, what's the uh, topic for this week, Kelly? <laughs> yes, Kelly. <laughs> uh, that's what you usually say, <laughs> yeah. Dad. Yeah, there Today, we go. <laughs> we're talking about selecting a dog trainer. How to select the right dog trainer. Do you think we need one? <laughs> <laughs> and they're coming. Okay, you mean, so someone has a puppy and a dog, how do they select a dog trainer? Yeah, how do you find a good dog trainer? How do you, you know, choose the right one for you? I think, well, these days it's a lot easier because you can go online and you can do some online searches. Um, you mean like the Witness Protection Program or... <laughs> no. <laughs> animal abuse? No, no, no. I mean, you can go to APDT, go to the trainer search there, or you can just write in dog trainers in the name of your city. And you're going to get a whole list to look at, and you've got lots of websites. And from reading the website, it's it's going to give you a pretty clear idea of what type of trainer, you know, they are. Because there's loads of different types of trainers, and people want um, different things. So I, I think it's it's very much a personal choice that people make. So first, do a web search, and then I would definitely go and look. I think it's. Um, so many training classes, you can sort of hide and peek and look in. And when the people come out, you talk to them. And and, and there's there's your answer right there. Well, you, why do you have to hide? Wouldn't most reputable classes allow observers? Oh, yeah, no, I if mean, they let you in, that's brilliant. Just like, say, um, I'd like to come observe what you do. Absolutely. And if they say no, don't go. Okay, so if they're they observing. Yes. What are they looking for? Well, they're looking that um, the dogs are having a good time, that the dogs are learning stuff. This, this, to me, is the biggie. It's a training class. So what are the dogs learning? What are the puppies learning? And so we're looking for behavior change. We, we expect that the puppies and the adult dogs come in, and they're wild and bully. They're out of control. But as minutes go by in class, the owners are now getting more control over the dog. So how quickly is this happening? That's a biggie. But then also, I think, for me at least, you know, any class I take, I want to have a good time. I, I, I want to giggle. I want to laugh. And, you know, so we're looking at the dogs. Are their tails wagging? Are they sniffing each other? Are they excited? Are the owners happy? That, that for me, is a, a very big thing. But, as I say, it's an individual choice. And when people go, they look for what they want. You know, they know what type of dog they have, whether they have a, a Yorkie or they have a Doberman. And, you know, they, they have these um, sort of thoughts in mind what their dog needs. So go to a class, and if someone comes out with a Doberman, chat to them and say, is it a good class for you? What do you like about it? What don't you like about it? And I find it, it, it's, um, it's much easier talking to the owners. They are, you know, very honest when they come out of a class. It's, it's like they have to face reality, you know, when they're in the class. And so if you catch them when they come out, they will tell the truth. Well, even even before that, you said, you know, there's lots of different uh, websites. Every trainer has a website these days. I, what I find is that there are lots of key words um, or buzzwords that we know in the industry. They kind of stand for something. But, you know, the average person might, might be confused. Um, so I, I think we should talk a little bit about philosophies of, of training, school of thought. 
you know, that different trainers use? Yeah, people will, you know, describe their training techniques. They'll, they'll use words like, you know, reward-based, uh, totally positive, uh, e-touch, and what have you. Usually, descriptions are very euphemistic. They are, I mean, it's an advertising word. I mean, let's face it, we're trying to get customers. And so, I like to look at techniques so um, I personally, when I look at dog training sites, I like to find sites that have videos on. I want to see the dog actually being trained in class. What is happening here? The, I, I know how you're describing it. And, and many dog trainers will say, oh, I'm the member of this uh, dog training association. I'm the member of that one. Or I have these degrees on my dogs, which may or may not be useful. I mean, the fact that you're a dog trainer who can train your dogs is brilliant. But the question is, can you teach other people to train their dogs? Well, that's a, that's a very good point, That especially in the case of a class. But even with a, with a private trainer, what you're really doing, or what the trainer is doing, is, is teaching the person. Because it's always up to the owner or handler to teach the dog, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the person is usually not a dog trainer. I, mean, I think this is a big um, trap that a lot of dog trainers fall into, that they are brilliant at what they do. I mean, they have 30 years of experience. They've competed in this and competed in that. And they are a really good dog trainer. But the question is, are they a good people educator? They have to teach people to train their dog. And they're teaching two novices at the same time, generally. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the dog is usually not a specialist dog. It's not, it's not a shepherd. It's not a Malinois. It's not a border collie. Well, even I if mean, it is, it's, it's a, brand new. It's starting the training process. Yeah. That is true. But it, it, the point I was making is that when people compete with dogs, normally we have an owner who's been in training classes for 20, 30 years, a lot of experience, and they choose a specialist breed. So if they're in agility, they have a border collie. They do not have a Basset Mastiff cross. Well, the owner does. And so with the owner, they have their dog. It's not a specialist, and they are, are pretty much a novice. And, and, and so what I'm saying is, is, is I guess, that... The techniques that I would use as a dog trainer with my dog are very different from techniques that I would teach owners to use with their dogs, because the fact of the matter is the owner is not me. And I, I don't think that trainers should underestimate the importance of their expertise. For them, it's so easy, but for the owner, it's so difficult. And, and this is very, it's hard for a lot of trainers to understand this. Um, I get it because for me, if I just cross out dog training and write in computers, I fully understand it. But for me, it's so difficult. For you and Jamie, it's so easy. And, and, and that's something we forget when working with dogs. It's so easy with us, but it's so impossible for the owner. And, and the owner, you know, I mean, like 30% of our owners are children. So the methods have to be expedient. And so, but back to what I said originally, what I look for on dog sites are is there a video of this trainer teaching someone to train their dog? See, I'm not interested in a trainer training their dog, a video of that. What I'm interested in, is there a picture of a class in action? Is there a picture of an individual consultation in action so that I can see exactly what is the trainer suggesting that the owner, which will be me because I'm looking for the class, does to their dog? And so you can read the website and it gives you ideas but it, it's an advertisement. A website is an advertisement. And so the words are catchphrases to, to bring people in. What I want to see is what 
is the trainer teaching the owner to do? And then how quickly does that dog learn? So I think that's really important. And you don't really need the brains of Einstein to do this as a, as a consumer. Well, what would be the top three things you would look for, let's say, first in, in a class? Well, if your mother got a new dog and you had to <laughs> tell her. Trust me, my mother, <laughs> and I can only say this because I know she would not listen to web-based radio. My mother will not be getting a new dog. Trust me. No, but that. mine just did. Yeah. And I had to do all that my consultation yes. from afar. I couldn't go and yeah. check out a trainer with her. I had to help her select a trainer. And I'm curious now what you would have told her. It, it depends whether it's a, a puppy class or an adult class. With an adult class, what I'm looking for is, is two things. The class is calm, that the energy is relaxed, that, that tail wags are moving, and, um, and number two, that the dogs are learning that we don't have the puppy constraints on learning here. You know, a puppy can only learn so quickly because he's a puppy, but an adult dog has an adult brain and he should be learning like bum, 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 bum. So in the first class, just 60 minutes, this adult dog should learn so much. He should learn really lengthy downstays, sit stays, lots of attention, um, so that we can then get on to teaching him to walk calmly on leash, which is much more difficult. So the two big things I'm looking for are calmness, that the trainer has acknowledged that these people with adult dogs are coming to class because of energy problems, essentially. The dogs are hyperactive, they're out of control, they're pulling on leash, they're jumping up, they're barking, they're chasing their tails. So the first thing they really approached was a lot of classical conditioning, a lot of energy control, settle the dogs down, calm them down, chill out. Focus. Yeah. And then at that point, the dog tunes in with his adult brain and you can teach him really quickly. So I want to see in the course of looking at this video or of sitting in on this class, wow, look at that little girl. She came in, the dog wouldn't look at her. Now the dog's sitting in front of her and looking at her like, like she is the most important person in the world. So you expect results in, in, in the very first session? Adult class, results, results, results. Absolutely. There's oh. no constraints on learning here. It's an adult dog's brain. But puppies are sponges. Why would that not be the same? In a puppy class, the, the curriculum is so much bigger that we're not just... In an adult class, we're teaching obedience. We want control over the dog's energy. We want him to sit, to lie down, to look at us. Obedience in, is such a... I, I don't... I, yeah, it's, it's the wrong word, and I didn't want to use it, but um, we're teaching them manners. Skills. Well, no, manners. Control manners. That, that's why they come to adult classes. They want to get the dog to sit, to walk on leash, to do long downstays. But a puppy class, the syllabus is enormous, and, and it encompasses every aspect of the puppy's temperament, socialization, that they are way at the top, far more important than what comes next, which is behavior problems, and then manners. And so a puppy class, I want to see it's entirely off leash the whole time. The only time we put leash on the dog is if we're teaching leash walking. I want the dog to be able to run over and socialize with every person in the room. So 12 puppies, 24 people, lots of dog people socialization. The puppy socializes and plays with other puppies and learns bite inhibition. And, and this is the reason to be there. Why do you want the puppies off leash the entire time? Why do you recommend that in your classes? Well, if they're on leash, socialization can't happen. They're just sitting next to the owner and they've wasted their time coming to this class where there's all these other puppies and all these people. 
And the, the number one and number two reasons for attending a puppy class are number one, to learn bite inhibition. And to do that, they must be playing with other dogs and, and play biting them. So they learn don't bite too hard. So that if they did bite as adults, it wouldn't hurt. And then number two, socialization. So that they aren't scared of other people and other dogs, that they, they learn social savvy. They aren't over the top with other people and other dogs. They don't run up to people and jump on them or run up to other dogs and say, hi, I'm a puppy, aren't you pleased to meet me? Because that will get the puppy into such trouble when he's in a dog park if he runs up to an adult dog like that. So that's why off-leash number one. But number two, that's what the owner wants to learn. I mean, the dogs aren't on leash at home. The puppy's off-leash at home, so the owner wants to learn off-leash control over their puppy. Well, if they learn it in a puppy class, if they learn off-leash control over their puppy in a class with 11 other puppies running around and, and people and children, you know, milling about, when they're at home, it'll be easy. It'll be a piece of cake. And, and, and it also, by teaching the puppy off-leash from the outset, training is now very, very quick. And I, I think this is important for people. People want to do it. They want it quick and easy. They want that puppy trained yesterday. And that's what we as trainers have to give them. We have to give them the easiest and quickest way to train your puppy. If we train the puppy on leash, it turns it into a two-step, very lengthy process. The puppy learns very quickly. You know, when you're on leash, you better do what the owner says. Or else they'll pull your neck up. Or they'll push your rump down. But then... The owner has to teach the puppy to do it when he's off-leash and at a distance. And you've really set yourself up now a real problem because the leash has become a crutch in training. And, and so you don't know how to control the dog off-leash. So I like to see classes where puppies are off-leash and the trainer says, right, we're training these puppies up, they're off-leash, it's very distracting, we're going to do it. And in week one, we see it evolve. Um, and by the end of week one, we think, oh, my word, look, that puppy is sitting in front of his owner in a sit-stay looking at the owner. Yet every puppy in this room is off leash. There's only, say, two out of 12 owners who have their puppy by the collar to stop him running around and, and, and acting like a maniac. But the other 10 really have good control here. OK, so that gives us an idea of, of what people should look for in a class. Uh, again, going back to the whole website thing and, and different promotions, uh, you know, I, I basically, when I do research or, or, you know, I'm perusing websites, you see, as you said, you see reward-based training or positive training as keywords or buzzwords for the, for the website. And then you see sites that say that um, we don't use food, we don't bribe our dogs to, to listen to us. You know, that seems like kind of two opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, I think people get a mixed message out there. You know, how, do they, how are they supposed to select a, a method or a philosophy? Um, don't get me... It, it, I love positive training, and I love um, reward-based training. Um, to me, it's the way to go. Um, I, I don't like seeing it touted um, to camouflage a training method, which definitely isn't reward-based training. So, you know, I like people to be honest with their words. But to me, the only way to go is reward-based training and using the rewards that dogs like. Running off leash, sniffing other dogs' butts, going for walks and well, such. Well, can you talk about a reward but, versus a bribe, then? Because yes. I was say, the, the, when someone says, I don't want to use food because I don't want to bribe my dog, it, it 
tells me right away they don't understand that food may be used five different ways. It can be used as a lure to magically produce the behavior. So now we can put it on cue. It can be used as a reward. And a reward comes like out of the blue, but by magic, after the behavior. There's no promise of the reward beforehand. A bribe is when you promise the reward beforehand to get the dog to act against his will. And as parents and politicians know, bribes don't work. There's two other uses of food as a general motivator. So I like to have a dog that I can turn on and, you know, and say, hey, sparkle. And the dog goes like this. And the way you do it is you say sparkle. And then out comes a bit of chicken skin, waggle, waggle in front of his nose. And you do that half a dozen times. And now whenever you say sparkle, the dog will turn on. And the fifth very useful um, application of food is as a distraction. So, for example, I will put a bit of food on the counter and stand behind the dog. So the dog's staring at the food. And then I wait until the dog looks at me. The instant he looks at me, I reach over, take the food and give it to him. So I'm using the food to actually get the dog to look away from me as a distraction. But when he looks at me, I then use the food as a reward for looking at me. Well, with that technique, after about a dozen repetitions, I'll end up with the dog sitting in a sit-stay and looking at me for minute after minute after minute. And so bribing is bad. And that's why if you're using food as a lure and as a reward, you've got to phase out the lure within six to 12 repetitions. Otherwise, it becomes a bribe. It kind of becomes like a, 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 a virtual leash, like we're talking about with the leash. Yeah, and what will happen there is that the dogs then will only respond if you have food in your hand. So we use the food as a lure to get the dog to sit, lie down, come, roll over, walk by our side, and, you know. So we could then reward him afterwards. So now we don't need the lure anymore. He will respond to our verbal commands or our hand signals. So we've got to phase out food as a lure. But we can use it as a reward for as long as we like. And, of course, we can use it for classical conditioning. You never want to stop giving your dog the occasional treat. And especially if people come to your house, the first thing that happens is you say to the dogs, go and get the treats. So the dog then learns, I love visitors. I, I, I like people. They, they always bring me presents. So when someone says, I don't want to use food because it's a bribe, it shows confusion in their mind as a trainer. It doesn't say that using food is wrong. You know, I, I don't know if I even told you this. Well, you were out of town a couple of weeks ago. I took Dune to a private training lesson with a new trainer that I'd never seen before. I feel like I'm... <gasps> was this confessions? <laughs> confessions. Confessing an illicit affair. <laughs> no, I wanted to take Dune and? to learn about this. Uh, I mean, to look to practice doing some um, competition obedience stuff. And I was trying somebody new. And uh, in the course of our, our short lesson, this person actually said that you shouldn't use a lure because dogs don't learn anything from luring. I never heard that one before, but I think it's worth addressing because I, I, it's out there. I, I've heard it so many times that people say that um, if you use a lure, the dog won't learn as well. You have to use rewards only or you have to shape the dog. So the dog has to use his brain to work it out. I mean, it's all too silly for words. Learning is learning. And once you have trained a dog to criterion, which means, for example, if you say sit, he sits. It doesn't matter how you've trained him. 
Whether you've used rewards or punishments, whether you've used lures or not, he now knows it. So training is training. So I have a, a question actually submitted <clears throat> on our website. And uh, it's, as usual, a multi-part question, but the crux of it is um, I've observed that there are a few schools of thought on whether to repeat a cue or request until you get the desired behavior. And I know some are proponents of never ask a second time, remain quiet, and wait for the dog to perform. However, I've seen you repeat cues, so you seem to know that it works. And at your most recent seminar, uh, you gave the example of asking a child to turn off the video game, multiple requests the first evening, fewer requests on subsequent nights. And uh, I think this is a very interesting question in and of itself. But then the last part of the question is... <laughs> we always have these multi-part <laughs> questions. I think this, is, this part, though, is uh, relevant on a broader sense and so could apply to the rest of our conversation. What makes for the different theories? Can you cite resources or research that look at this issue? Uh, not that your opinion doesn't count, but I like the cold, hard facts when push comes to shove. Um, yeah, I mean, I love the cold, hard facts, too. Here's the deal. Nearly every trainer um, says you should never repeat the cue. And this is whether you are a, a traditional leash trainer, uh, training mainly by leash corrections, um, or whether you're a trainer who studied learning theory and you really understand the scientific theoretical base. They all say you never repeat the cue, but for different reasons. The leash trainer is basically saying you don't repeat the cue because you should do it on the first command. My response to that is, yeah, that's the final performance. But in teaching, it may be necessary to re repeat the instruction a number of times. It's like you're driving the car and you say, turn right. No, right, right. And then the person turns right. I mean, what are we going to do? Just say turn right once and we go straight on and we ah, miss it? but that's assuming that they already know what turning right means and in the okay. training process. Yeah, that, that, that's a different issue entirely. That, that what I'm assuming here is now the dog has a fair understanding of what the cue means. Although, if we have to repeat it, of course, we know he doesn't understand it as we mean it. The dog thought, oh, I thought sit meant sit in the kitchen when you have my food bowl. I didn't know it also meant sit in the park when there's all these distractions. So training is actually teaching the dog that the cue always means the same no matter where we are and, and what we're doing. Now, a theoretical trainer, someone who's well-versed in learning theory, says you never repeat the cue because you're devaluing it. Um, on the other hand, um, and, and they say that if you're repeating the cue, you're going sit, 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 sit. You're like nagging the dog and teaching the dog that the cue is meaningless. Well, I say, you know, if the cue's meaningless, you can't teach them it's more meaningless. But there's a big difference between nagging, repeating the cue and the dog doesn't respond. That's nagging. Then the dog learns the cue is meaningless. Then if you repeat the cue until the dog does it, that you don't give up. And that's the big difference. And here, this is very interesting because you don't have to get angry. You don't have to shout. You just say to your dog, Rover, sit, sit, sit. There's a good dog. And what you find there, these are the cold, hard facts. If you do this over and over, on each trial, you repeat the cue less and less until eventually you can do it in a play session and you just say to your dog, Rover, sit, and he does it on the first command. And so the sequence that I use is, if ever I have to repeat the instruction, so sit, Sit. Sit. Thank you. I show the dog the treat and say, you could have got this, you know, if you sat, but now you're going to have to repeat it. Come here, sit. Good boy. Go play. 
And so the dog learns you have to do it following a single instruction. But in the learning, they may have to repeat the instruction a number of times. Oh, I, don't, I don't know. That, that's, I'm thinking in the very early learning process, when the dog does not know the cue, you know, if the sit, sit doesn't mean anything. You could be saying chair, blue, right, anything. I, I think maybe that's where people think you're devaluing it. No, they don't know it yet, but they're not going to learn it very quickly to make the association if you're repeating it. Maybe they'll end up thinking that it's actually a, a three-part cue, sit, sit, sit. Yeah, this has basically come from um, from clicker training, that when clicker training became very popular, because it is a lengthy process, we are shaping the behavior. There's no point in telling the dog to do something because you're going to be a couple of sessions away before you've captured that behavior. However, with lure reward training, I know from the very first session, within seconds of meeting this dog, when I ask him to come, he's going to come. When I ask him to sit, he's going to sit. When I ask him to lie down, he's going to lie down. I know he's going to do it. That's the power of the lure. So with lure reward training, I can use the cue on the very first trial. And I can say, Rover, sit, because I know when I move the food over his head that he's going to sit. So, so that's a really big difference there. And, and it is where, you know, lure reward training is the quickest way to train because of the power of the lure. So I'm curious as to what the kind of what the body of research out there is. Who, who's doing scientific research into different training methods? Does that exist at all? No one. No one. Here we have this gold mine of in classes all over the country, all over the world. People are training dogs and no one is actually sitting there and writing down notes how long did it take before the dog did a one-minute sit-stay? Or what were time and trials to criterion? Or how many times did they have to punish the dog? Or how many times did they have to reward the dog? No, it, it, to me it's amazing that this would be the most wonderful topic for, for people to study, but no one's actually doing it and, and uh, keeping numbers. I mean, you know, and it makes me think uh, perhaps we have to do that. You know, that's what we need to do. Do we have time for one more quick we question? We actually do, just if it's me? a quickie. Yeah. All right, it's just yeah. for me. I think you can even do a yes or no answer for this one. Um, do certain types of dogs, or let's say either breeds or personalities, require certain methods of training? You know? Yeah, no. I mean, you know, a dog's a dog. He has a dog's brain. We have a human brain, which, which should work be more superior in terms of training. And, and we can teach a dog to sit no matter what the breed is. There will be some overall differences in terms of size of dog and length of his legs. And, and for example, it's harder to get short-legged dogs to sit and lie down. No, but I mean, like, people but, who say, well, my dog, uh, you, can't, you don't train huskies with food training. They don't respond to food training. Or, you know, um, you have to teach you know, Rottweilers who's the boss. No, it, it's all silliness. And what people are actually saying is huskies don't respond to food training the way I try it and don't get it to work. However, when I use food training, sorry, it always works. When I use food training, low reward training with rotters, it works. It works with Akitas, it works with Malamutes, it works with Shih Tzus. It just makes training so easy and, and so enjoyable, so simple for owners. I mean, it really is absolutely the way to go. So learning is learning. Learning is learning. All right. Very good. Thank you. That's all for this episode of iWoofs. Thank you for listening.